When it comes to reenacting, location can make or break an event. In this episode, we're going to talk about what type of site makes an ideal backdrop for your reenactment. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Lhasa. How are you doing today, Lhasa? I'm actually doing pretty fine. Um, I mean, we have another heat wave going on, so I'm sweating again. But other, other, other than that, I'm uh, I'm fine. Um, now, I know that you were working on uh, like a movie project. Um, how did that go? Uh, I was working on an outdoor theater play. Okay, that's um, right. Um, yeah, um, it was basically like two and a half weeks of the busiest time of my life uh we had um we lived on site uh, it's uh, it's a world war ii theater play and it um it um it um it is played at a uh, at a coastal fort and we lived in like one of the original barracks there but it's still under uh, restoration so it doesn't have running water or anything so um everything was kind of a chore to do um it was very warm every day and every night so every day you just wake up to a sweat-soaked bed and stuff and several people um struggled with dehydration and a few even got hospitalized because of uh, heat stroke wow that's crazy but i mean all in all it was a fun experience um <laughs> now that uh, everything has calmed down a bit but uh, yeah, it was very hectic. I had uh, many projects planned to do during the uh, theater play because I thought I would have more downtime, but I just haven't been able to do anything. So you guys were you were living in like a World War II barracks. Uh, was that yeah, that's correct. Was that like uh, realistic? Was that um, did that give you some insight into what what World War II was like? Uh n- not really, because we didn't focus on realism because we were living there. Um, so, we, I mean, we had a fridge there and um, everybody had quite a bit of kit, I think. Some brought a little bit too much kit, so we struggled a lot with uh, keeping things uh, in order. But we didn't have any focus on, like, uh, reenactment side of it. So, um, um, I mean, it didn't really give me, like, a good insight of how it was. Um it must have been super hot inside those barracks. Yeah, um, and especially here in uh, Norway during the summer, the sun is up for a very long time. Um, we're very close to the Arctic Circle, and that means that we have uh, sunshine for um, quite a bit of the day, like 18 hours, and that means that it's very warm 24-7. It, it, like the temperature on daytime is very similar to that during the night. So it was just extremely warm, and it was two weeks straight without any rain and just sunshine and thirty degrees. Um, so yeah, that uh, really did a did an impact. And for the theater play, were you guys wearing like wool uniforms? Uh, yeah, we were, uh, but not during um, uh, training and stuff like that, uh, exercising. So we just um, wore it during the actual um, actual shows. Wool uniforms at thirty degrees Celsius is uh, that's a, that can be tough. Yeah, the the good thing with wool uniforms though is that it doesn't um 
it doesn't like uh, hinder the wind so if there's a wind there it just flows straight through and actually cools you down pretty much but we had some days with absolutely zero wind and that that was like the worst days but as soon as the, those days that we had a little bit of wind it wasn't really that bad well that's good anyway all right, so I guess uh, we should probably jump into our topic uh, today, which is going to be about reenactment event settings and reenactment event sites and the pros and cons of those. Um, Lassa, what for you, what kind of sites do you guys like to reenact at? What kind of sites do you have the opportunity to reenact at? I mean, is there a lot of different types of settings where you guys get to do events? Not really. We are very restricted to the good old um, uh, forests. Uh, we do have the coastal fort, but we don't. I mean, a coastal fort doesn't really um, isn't really good for many different kind of scenarios. It's more like um, training uh, boot camp uh, stuff. But for like actual uh, combat reenactment, we're pretty much limited to forest lands. Yeah, it's more or less the same for us. Most of the events that we have an opportunity to do are just in the woods. Um, there are some event sites that we go to that have kind of more open fields, um, you know, not necessarily densely forested. There might be forests there in addition to um, larger fields and meadows. Um, I really like doing events that are in buildings. Like you say, you mentioned the coastal fort. There's a, uh, a fort where we get to do events as well. In the past, uh, we've done events at other types of settings in other types of buildings, um, but there's not too, too many opportunities for us to use buildings, which is kind of, creates kind of a problem because, uh, like we discussed sort of in our episode about tents, um, the, the reality of World War II was that soldiers were, were sleeping in buildings a lot of the time, uh, even in, you know, kind of in the field. They might have been quartered or billeted in towns or villages, uh, whereas we don't really have that opportunity, generally speaking. I mean, I've never had an opportunity to do a reenactment that was in like a town or a village setting. So we have to, we have to sleep in tents all the time, which is fun, but um, in some situations is kind of an authenticity compromise. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, like when you watch World War Two movies and you watch um, uh, not even movies but like original footage, original photos, you always see them uh, fighting in and around buildings because a piece of forest or a piece of wood aren't necessarily tactically or operationally or strategically important. So, but a town is. So most of the fighting would have been done in and around. Um, uh, towns, villages, buildings. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, these like small, relatively small, sometimes wooded areas where we have these reenactment events where you've got two sides that are kind of crashing through a dense woods in a place that might be might be hilly terrain or uh, difficult to get through. That that type of an environment in many cases in World War II, I think, would have just been bypassed. You know, it's not very good, uh, suitable for attacking and maybe not even suitable for defending. Um, but, look, we have to use the sites that we have because, at least where I live, areas where we can reenact are kind of few and far between. Yeah, this is absolutely one of those authenticity uh, compromises. Uh, I mean, if you have a, 
village that looks like it's from the 40s, then good on good on your reenactment unit, I guess. But um, most of us don't. Yeah. Um, let's talk about like for you, what would be sort of an ideal place for like a public event? If you guys were going to be doing a display, what kind of sites would you be thinking about or what kind of sites would you like to be invited to? Mm, That's actually a good one. I guess I would actually like to be, I wouldn't actually prefer a historical site because that is very limited. Um, I know, for example, uh, some of the medieval reenactors here in Norway, Viking reenactors and stuff, uh, when they go to like historic sites, they can't even put uh, put in their uh, tent pegs because it's a historic site. So that can be severely limiting. Um, I would rather go to a place that is privately owned and we could, for example, dig trenches and stuff like that and have like a trench system, maybe bring up an ex- excavator like a few days prior and stuff like that. That's cool. Having an opportunity to dig or build stuff that can remain on site and doesn't have to be filled in or taken down immediately after the reenactment event is, um, that's such an asset, you know, and unfortunately, even on most of the private properties that we use, that's not possible. You know, the, the landowner understandably doesn't want like trenches uh, on the property that people or livestock could fall into. They're not looking to have people build, you know, some kind of bunker or, or barracks on their pristine farmland or whatever it is. Um, yeah, if that, I guess that kind of would be, um, whether it's a public event or a private event, having the opportunity to, to build things there, um, that really means something that really adds something to an event site. Yeah, um, uh, my unit uh, attended uh, a couple of years a uh, public event uh, in northern England, actually. And I was privately owned, and they would bring up like excavators and dig like huge trench systems uh, for the uh, reenactors there. Um, and that just gives you the possibility to um, show the public more of a field like uh, impression display look. Than, for example, if you're on a historic site and you can't put, even put down uh, pegs for your tents. Sure. Yeah, most of the uh, public events that I have done are either on at public historical sites or um, in some cases they're on private property, but even in those cases they haven't been places where we could dig. You know, they there's uh, a place where they want you to set up. You set up your tents, the public comes through, um, I guess there have been some sites where other reenactors have dug trenches or whatever, um, but unfortunately, uh, I don't know, it's tough. It's kind of tough because sites come and go. That's kind of a reality of reenactment event sites. If there's an event that you're interested in going to because you think it's a really cool site, you'd like to reenact there, you'd like to get pictures of yourself there or just check it out, um, You know, don't wait until next year because sometimes there isn't a next year with these places. Oh, very much so. Um, that's what I say to all my guys when we come to like a bigger event is that try to get to it now because it's not there. Maybe next year it won't be any. And that has happened so many times that uh, good events are just don't exist anymore. Sure. Um, what about like, let's, let's talk about, I guess, this 
kind of basic site that most reenactment groups are probably going to have an opportunity to use, which is just a forest somewhere. Um, what kind of scenarios do you like to, to put together if your, your site is just a forest? That kind of depends if we're uh, also a uh, if if it's just us or if there's uh, other units and or enemy units. Um, but uh, if it's just us, which is the most common for us, I guess what we like to do most is set up um, a uh, scenario where we are defending the outskirts of a um, of a town. Um, and we either do that the eastern front or western front or something like that, um, and we just say like uh, we're here to defend this uh, area because um, while we're on the flanks we're do we don't expect the enemy to come here they will most likely bypass us to use a road or something like that because that's how war works but um, that's the scenario we usually go with something along with those, along those lines so in that scenario you guys are kind of pretty static and defensive uh, you know just set up there I mean uh, is that is that how you do it yeah and if not, uh, we do have a very large forest here, and then we may do like a uh, a tactical um, uh, marching sort of, where we just uh, constantly on a move. Um, that sounds a funny. nice variation we discovered uh, recently with this tactical defend uh, areas that uh, we pretend we get a message uh, throughout the weekend that the enemy has broken through, and we need to relocate further back. So then we just wrap up everything really quickly, and we. Uh, set up new defensive positions further uh, further back. That sounds like a great scenario. In uh, in my unit, as I've mentioned in the past, we portray like a rear area security troops usually. So when we're faced with doing an event that's just in a forest, um, we will basically kind of pretend that we are just an outpost that has been sent into this wilderness area just so that there is a... Uh, a German presence there in sort of like a garrison way. You know, we set up a, a camp and kind of live there. We might have other tasks that we work on. Like if there's trails there, we might um, make a sketch or a map that show the different trails, or uh, we might be searching for evidence of partisan activity, which could be in the form of uh, old campsites or something like that. Um, it's uh, there's, there's kind of a lot that you can do, um, if you don't do the events too often, you know, but if you're doing, I find in my experience that doing events in the same small area or the same forest, um, many times a year can eventually lead to a form of burnout because the events, it, it can be hard to make the events different enough from each other to be unique and memorable and special. Um, obviously a winter event is going to feel very different from a summer event, even if it's at the same spot. Uh, but, you know, if you're doing an event every month in the same place and that place doesn't have a lot of different settings to offer so that you can really change up the scenario, it can I find it can get kind of uh, boring. Yeah, you definitely need variation. Um, we talked a lot about this in the uh, in the Renactor Burnout episode, actually. That it's important to have uh, varied events and event locations. So, what about what about buildings? Uh, when you have the opportunity to use buildings, you know, what are some of the scenarios that you would use in that kind of a setting? Well, the most common one is the uh, coastal fort, where we do um, uh, boot camp events. 
Um, and that's pretty much the only opportunity we have to use buildings. Um, we I'm trying to think of like recent building events that I've done. I know I've mentioned Fort Mifflin in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania as a place that we've done events at. It's a Revolutionary War era or post-Revolutionary War era fortress, 18th century fortress. Um, and I like to just kind of do all kinds of garrison tasks at that event. We might set up an office and portray a sort of a garrison headquarters, local headquarters setting. And then uh, we might also have uh, troops that are doing just basic kind of mundane daily tasks in a garrison, uh, perimeter patrols or security patrols, guard duty, um, and just the kind of downtime activities that people might have done uh, on garrison duty, maintenance of uniforms and equipment, cleaning the weapons and that kind of stuff. Um, th I like the opportunities that a building gives because you could do all of the outdoor stuff at an event that has buildings. You don't have to stay in indoors, right? But you also have this opportunity to create realistic interior spaces, which is something that to me is very fun. And then to use those spaces in a realistic way, um, you can kind of control, I think, your environment a little bit more when you're inside a building. You can uh, put stuff up on the walls. You can bring furniture, you know, bring period correct, uh, all kinds of fixtures for the room and really make that space look um, like something out of a picture from World War II. Whereas uh, a forest, you know, it might be might be correct for World War II, right? Trees and the ground, but it doesn't maybe doesn't give you as much uh, opportunity for customization, so to speak. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. Um, creating like an interior space, even if it's a small building, does it does a lot. A dream, sort of a dream scenario for me would be to be in some kind of a a barracks, like a uh, you know a real German style barracks building with rooms with bunk beds, maybe with rifle racks and a parade ground where you could practice drill and marching and train. I mean, that, that kind of a site would be like a dream. And I've never really reenacted in a setting like that. Um, I may, may never get the opportunity to do so. I mean, that if we were just talking about like things that you would kind of imagine or dream about the opportunity to recreate a world war two era city or town, you know, would be totally incredible. But, uh, I don't, I don't have really any hope that I'll ever see anything on that scale. Mm, yeah. We're getting close to like a, a barracks building with gun racks and, um, a place, uh, parade grounds and stuff, but that's a coastal fort. So it isn't village, so to say. Like imagine the impressions that would be possible if you even had, I don't know, a, a, a suburban street or something, you know, that just, I don't know, it, the uh, the different impressions that one could do, the different settings that one could do, the, you know, ability to incorporate civilians more, which is something that I think we struggle, struggle with a little bit in World War II reenacting is incorporating civilians. And part of that is just that, um, most of the event sites or event settings that someone will go to are just not very conducive to civilian impressions. You know, there, there isn't a, um, a 1930s or 1940s German town that we can reenact in most of us. Um, so we get limited to these kind of military field impressions because that's what you can do when your site is a forest or a field. 
Yeah, um, the Swedes are actually pretty good at incorporating uh, civilian um, live-action role players into their tacticals. That's cool. Um, yeah, that that's a good resource that they can draw on. I mean, what what are the uh, what do the civilians do in the in those tacticals? What are they actually? What are they portraying, or what do they physically do? Uh, I've actually not been present at any one of those tacticals, sadly. But um, what I understood from my guys is that they, some of them are like partisans, but others are like just plain old civilians. That's interesting. So you kind of have this anti-partisan um, mission that you have to like find out who is the partisan. We've been able to um, incorporate civilian partisan impressions uh, quite a bit because Look, those were the guys that the unit type that my unit portrays fought against, really. Um, and, of course, we are uh, really friendly with the local Soviet group, and they kind of have a subgroup that does partisan impressions. Um, and so, you know, we've we've had a few tacticals even where we faced off against partisans. Um, one of the challenges with civilian reenacting, I think, is that when you have partisans and you have civilian reenactors it's almost like everyone is a partisan you know you see somebody in civilian clothes and um maybe you just assume or you know that they're portraying a partisan so to to have the opportunity to uh interact with a group of people where some of them maybe are are portraying partisan combatants and some of them are just regular civilians that would be really cool yeah it really gives like um I think like it gives you the opportunity to do more uh, role playing sort of sort of say, which I find often lacking in uh, reenactment. Sure. Yeah, I agree definitely. Um, what about like? Not that you need to do like live action role play level, but at least like try to be immersed somewhat more than wearing an old uniform. Yeah, I think we've we've discussed this some to some extent in the past. You know, I I really like doing yeah. the. Uh, basically live action role play stuff where you are kind of in character pretending to be somebody else, whether it's for an hour or a few hours or a few days. Um, that's, that's a style that really appeals to me. Totally. When you're maybe offered an opportunity to go to an event or if you're looking for a place to host an event, what, what are some things that for you make for a great event setting? Um, First of it is isolation, I guess, but also ease to get there, which are sort of like an oxymoron. But um, I think the site should be isolated enough that you don't have to uh, struggle with um, hikers or um, something like that, or even people um, being scared at their gunfires or something like that, but also being close enough that it isn't like a haul to get there. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. You want it to, you've got to kind of strike a balance between um, remote enough that you're not going to be encountering other people and uh, not so remote that it's a, uh, it's a two day uh, hike to get into the place where you're going to be doing the event. Yeah, exactly. I like it when, you know, I know that there's water available at the site. Um, Although that's not always the case because water can be so heavy. And if you have to bring in on your back, you know, all the water that you're going to use, it can limit um, how much time you can be at the site, really, you know? Yeah, um, bringing water is very important. Um, I'm, 
most places we have in Norway where we have some sort of water available, either by a nearby farm, which may be like an hour to walk to, or um, uh, through streams. The parking is like a major concern for me. How much space for parking is there? How close or how far um, from the site are we going to have to park? You know, I've done a lot of events where you have to park pretty far away from where you have to set up. You have to bring everything in on your back, which is okay. But there's other times, especially in the winter months when there's not a lot of daylight, uh, where I might be looking to get to an event on a Friday after work and maybe I get there after it's already gotten dark or it's getting dark, um, where it's so convenient to be able to basically drive up to where the tents are going to be located and uh, just drop my gear there and, and park the car and then I can I can set up, set up in the dark if I have to. Yeah. Um, our um, forest area has a road going uh, through it uh, so we have the possibility to park on the side if we're just using parts of the woods or if you're using the entire we have to uh, walk uh, like 45 minutes then we can drive in and dump everything so we just walk um, in uh, without carrying anything sure um, I also like when the site offers like someplace cool where I can take pictures like um, we did an event last year that was uh, on a mountain so we got some really cool pictures showing some kind of mountainous views you know something different from where we usually get to do events I love the historic sites that have old buildings um, even if we're not going to use the inside of the building just to have pictures around, you know, period or correct or even older than World War II period looking buildings. I, li I like that kind of stuff. Um, or just, you know, whether it's agricultural fields, hay fields or corn fields or, you know, whatever kind of setting. I mean, there's you know, cir circling back around a little bit to like a forest, you know, there's only so much you can do in terms of uh, making interesting photographs. Once you've taken a thousand reenactment photos of guys marching on a path through the forest, there's not really anywhere else to go. But, um, you know, other types of event settings that are more different and unique can kind of give a little bit more. Sometimes I feel a little bit more inspired to take more or better photos in places like that. Mm, I absolutely agree. Um, that's what I like about the uh, events we do in um, uh, on the continental of Europe uh, with uh, with the Second Army in Europe, guys. Because um, although we don't have uh, access to like go inside private homes and stuff, we'll, we're passing through villages uh, all the time on our trucks, and we're stopping by quite a few of them. And then we have the ability to go and uh, take photos. And many of those smaller villages in um, in the rural parts of Central Europe do actually still look a lot uh, like World War II. Like, you can find many places that are um, that still look authentic. That's awesome. Yeah, obviously here in the United States, we're really limited in that regard. Um, you know, even a lot of places here don't look like places where World War II was fought. I mean, World War II was not fought here. Um, so that that's a big difference. Um, you know, I know people some americans uh you know we've talked to ben longfellow on here before he's had the opportunity to travel to europe and do some events there um and i mean the, the pictures that come out of those settings are just uh they're really cool it's tough for us in the united states to have um places like that even just to take photos <laughs> surely you should uh she should fly over <laughs> 
yeah, it's probably I'll probably never make it over to Europe for a reenactment, but uh, maybe someday. You know, something else that I think we might have touched on also in the past was uh, the idea of doing private events on public land. It's something that my group has done. Uh, only kind of in a very small way, and it can be kind of risky. Um, you know, it's definitely not ideal. Um, you know, what do you, what do you, what's your take on that, Lassa? Uh, we've actually done it um, one summer, actually with uh, with Ben, where we um, parked at a regular hiking area. Uh, it was during the summertime, so most people were out and about traveling, anyways, um, and we. Uh, just did a very long marching event where we marched for a long time and we set up camp and then we kept on marching. And that was actually pretty fun. We met a few guys and they uh, joked about us uh, being like an outdoor museum. And yeah, everybody liked it. But uh, of course, it's uh, there's a risk involved with it. One of the challenges here is that um, like laws regarding firearms and when and where you can carry them can vary a lot from state to state and even from town to town within the same state. So um, we've done some events. We used to do in the past, we used to do this more often where we would be portraying um, German released POWs making their way home or something where we, some scenario where it didn't require the use of rifles because uh, that, that adds a, a big element of uh, difficulty and a challenge, the, the whole firearm aspect. Um yeah, that removes that quite easily. Right. But I, I like those scenarios a lot, but, but even in those scenarios, it, it does kind of limit what you can do. There's no enemy. It's just you and your guys, and you basically can uh, march, or you can kind of set up a, a place to stay for the night. Those are kind of the two opportunities, really, that you have in, in a setting like that, with that scenario. Yeah. Um. You know, there's other times that we have done stuff on a limited scale on public land with firearms in places where it's legal and where, you know, it's uh, permitted and we have the, you know, we know what we're doing. We, we've done the research or know what the laws are, make sure we're not violating any laws. But um, it can be, uh, I don't know, places for that are kind of few and far between in the area where I live in northeastern United States where there's a pretty dense population and stuff's pretty built up and most open space that's public is uh, heavily regulated. I know there's other places in America that have open space that's kind of unregulated and you can do whatever you want, but where I live, we don't really have that as a uh, an opportunity. Yeah, no, there's strict rules about uh, walking around with firearms here as well. So, um, I mean, uh, when we did it, we did take a risk, but... Um you know, it's, you just have to um, look at the risks and the consequences, I guess, and just make up your own uh, opinion about it. Well, I mean, how much would it cost to build your own Fortis village? <laughs> well, that would be, uh, you know, I, we would have to have some kind of uh, building contractor on as a guest, Lassa. But I think, uh, <laughs> I mean, I would applaud anybody who tries. But even just the, the project that we're working on where we're building those two bunkers, um, you know, it's taken us a lot of time and a lot of money and it's not a village. It's basically two sheds almost that are underground uh, to actually build a, a village with, with realistic above ground structures that are correct inside and out. Um, I mean, that's not, 
Uh, that's going to be out of my budget loss. I'll put it that way. Yeah, we should look at the budget uh, saving pride Ryan had to build uh, that uh, their village. Sure. <laughs> I guess that's your uh, that's your uh, answer. <laughs> yeah, if uh, you know, if people out there are listening to this and would like to see us build a World War II village, you know, just uh, donate to the Patreon, you know, 5 bucks a month and uh, we'll do our best <laughs> to make that happen. <laughs> Every month we buy like two bricks. <laughs> yeah, we can. It'll be like a you know, if you donate five dollars a month with Patreon, when we build our World War II village, there will be a a plank with your name on it. You know, in one of the huts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'd take out some of our pictures from our events, and we'd be sharing them with the veterans and. You know, they would say, uh, oh, I, I don't remember who this was. Or I, and then we would say, oh, no, no, like, th- that's us. A public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win. It is the worst thing imaginable when you're in it. Yeah, I've always loved helmets from World War II, and that has snowballed into, I want to get a helmet from every country from World War II. I'm insane. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. So I guess speaking of Patreon, uh, I'll just throw out there, you know, thanks to everybody who donates. Uh, without you guys, it, it wouldn't be possible. Um, and as regular listeners will be aware, you know, last the last month or so, we basically were on vacation um, with Lhasa working and everything uh, on the, the film, not the film, but the theater play. Uh but we're going to be getting back to like regular content. Um, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, absolutely. We're also going to introduce some changes to Patreon uh, very shortly as well, maybe even before this, uh, this episode airs. Yeah, um, we're going to kind of restructure it a little bit because it's just uh, we need to make sure that when people donate via Patreon that we uh, fulfill everything that we promise you guys. I don't want to let anybody down. Um, so we're going to be just kind of restructuring it a little bit to make sure that everything that we say that you get, you really get not to say that people didn't get it in the past, but look, uh, there was no, um, as of the time of recording here at the beginning of August, we didn't manage to get a Patreon exclusive episode out in July. And I'm sorry about that. Um, and it won't happen again. Exactly. Um, I'm planning to create something for the patrons for July as well as the, uh, like a little late July um, episode, I guess. And then, of course, the August uh, will come out as scheduled. Excellent. All right. So I guess this was kind of a short one, but uh, that's kind of uh, all we've got. If you've got ideas for future episodes, if there's anything you'd like to hear about, please drop us a line. Don't hesitate to get in touch and uh, let us know what you'd like to hear on the program. Absolutely. Um, you can do that either through Facebook or Instagram or privately to either me or Chris or even on email, um, the Reenactors Corner at gmail.com. All right. So I guess uh, to you, Lassa, and to everybody out there, I hope you're uh, having a great summer and I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Fela Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off 
off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.